Hi, I'm Alan Alexandrov, and I'm one of the senior editors of the journal Global Summetry. It was my good fortune recently to involve Sherry Berman, uh, who joined us for a roundtable at the American Political Science Association meetings in Washington uh, towards the end of August. While most of us were uh, old IR types, uh, Sherry is a comparative uh, politics uh, professor. Uh, she joined us in the roundtable, The Strange Death and Possible Rebirth of the Liberal Order, and we were fortunate enough to get her views on the crisis of democracy uh, in Europe and, of course, in North America as well, um, during uh, this particular roundtable. Uh, I would point out, uh, Sherry recently published a book called Democracy and Dictatorship from the Ancien Regime to the Present Day. And of course, it deals a great deal, obviously it's historical, but it has a great deal of insight into the rise of populism and the threats to the democratic order in Europe. So it was really, really uh, good to get Sherry to join us here. Sherry is a professor of political science at Barnard College, Columbia University, and she serves on a number of editorial boards, including the Journal of Democracy, Dissent, and Political Science Quarterly. So, let me introduce to you uh, Sherry Berman, and let's talk about the crisis of democracy. So, Sherry, let me let me start uh, you off this way. Um, let's do a little bit of terminology. So, I wonder if you could describe for us democracy in the kind of sense you're using it, and then how it differs, most particularly from liberal democracy. Well, that that is actually a great place to start to start because that distinction has once again become very politically important and a matter of debate. So. Democracy obviously is a term that originally derives from the Greek uh, rule by the people, um, and in its most uh, in its contemporary formulation, it essentially means for political scientists and others that um, this is a form of government where the people get to choose their leaders and um, you know who rules them essentially. Mm -hmm. um, and at its most basic level, therefore, democracy is about free and fair elections. It's about the procedures or the methods by which, again, leaders and governments are chosen. Um, liberal democracy, right, is something actually quite different because the liberal part of that term is as important as the democratic part of that term. And liberalism actually does not mean the same thing as democracy. And in some ways, liberalism limits democracy because it says that there are certain things that democratic governments, even if they're elected by a majority of the population in a free and fair election, cannot do. So the rule of law is above elections. Um, the protection of individual and minority rights is above elections. Governments do not have untrammeled power simply because they have the support of a majority. So liberalism refers to all of those things that we sort of, I think intuitively many of us understand as part of liberalism. Um, and sometimes that can conflict with democracy, like I said, because it often puts limits on what elections can do, what majorities can do and things like that. And so today, 
A lot of populists, for example, claim to be true Democrats. Um, and what they mean by that is that they represent, they think, the people, the majority of the people. Um, but they're often not particularly interested in the liberal parts of liberal democracy. Mm -hmm. I see that distinction, but maybe I'm going to throw in one other feature. Maybe that helps uh, to clarify particularly contemporary politics even more directly. And that is, you know, for you to take a, a shot at populism um, uh, and in particular elected populists. How does how does that fit in? How do they? And now, obviously, that's not a an ideology, but it's 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 uh, a an increasingly important faction within uh, politics today. So that's another great question because it's a term that we hear all the time. And yet if you ask, you know, five different journalists, political scientists or whatever, what populism is, you might get five different definitions, which isn't very helpful. So, I mean, generally when people talk about populists, they are referring to politicians and parties that have a few common characteristics. Well, first, as already kind of discussed, they claim to talk for the people, but their definition of what the people are or is, is often quite contentious. So they claim to speak for the silent majority. They claim to speak for the people who have been ignored by status quo or establishment politicians. Um, they claim to speak for sometimes um, a majority of the electorate that they feel has, um, you know, put them in power. So one thing is they claim to be Democrats on some very basic or simple level. They often tend to have a very strong anti-establishment streak. That is to say, it's not just that they don't like the party or politicians that they pushed out of power. That's kind of characteristic of democracy in general, but that they tend to feel that the establishment is somehow corrupt. It's not serving the interests of the people. It's against the interests of the people, that sort of thing. Um, populists also tend to kind of, um, going along with these already mentioned characteristics, tend to sort of divide societies in us and them kind of categories, right? There's the people, the good people, the people who support the populists, and then there's everyone else who doesn't support them, who somehow or another working to undermine the interests of the, you know, the real people. Um, so there's the sort of speaking for the people, there's an us versus them quality, there's an anti-establishment quality, and there's also, again, associated with these other things, a generally an anti-pluralist or an anti-liberal aspect of populism. That is to say, the things that we associate with liberalism that I mentioned before, protection of individual and minority rights, rule of law, these are things that populists generally have little respect for, especially when they're seen as going against their interests. And they will often say, well, look, we were democratically elected. Right. We have support of a majority. And so these other things should fall by the wayside because the people should rule. So again, anti-liberalism and anti-pluralism are also pretty standard features of populism. Um, so Sherry, just so do populists, even though they uh, emerge within the context of uh, democratic politics generally, do they pose a threat? And if they pose a threat, why do they pose a threat? Because, you know, they say that they are seeking to represent the interests of ordinary people. Well, they definitely do pose a threat. How much depends on a variety of factors, not the least of which is how strong 
um, and how sturdy the rest of the democratic system is. So as I already mentioned, in general, we consider populists to be anti-liberal mm -hmm. and anti-pluralist. And insofar as you think those are integral components of democracy, for sure, populists represent a threat to those aspects of democracy. But even if you think of democracy in its sort of simpler form, um, in its more basic form, that is to say, free and fair elections, um, you know, checks and balances, yep. institutional features like that. Yep. You know, what we have seen is populists represent a threat even to that, despite their claim to often be the real Democrats and representing the people. And you can see that in places, again, where democracy is relatively weak, relatively young, in places like Hungary and Turkey, where populists have come to power by elections, they've, they've won elections, and what they've gradually done is they've sort of undermined the other aspects of democracy while leaving elections in place. They've undermined the independence of the judiciary, they've undermined the freedom of action of civil society and the press, they have undermined their opposition, they have co-opted business leaders. And so they've done all this while the elections remain, but they've hollowed out everything else about democracy. And again, in places where opposition is relatively weak, a free press is relatively new, civil society is relatively young, it's much easier to do these kinds of things. So again, more successful in places like Hungary and Turkey than they were in Austria or admittedly for a very short time in um, Italy. So they definitely represent a threat to the liberal and pluralistic aspects of democracy, but probably even to democracy itself in its more minimal sense in places where, again, the institutions and the norms of democracy are relatively young and weak. Okay. okay. So clearly a threat to kind of new democracies, but presumably less of a threat to more well-established in quotes, liberal democracies, you know, particularly those we see in Western Europe uh, or even uh, obviously in North America as well. Yes, I mean, I would say that's true, but that is not, I mean, that is not a reason not to be wary of potential threats, right? Which is to say that even in places where the institutions and norms of democracy are stronger yep. and longer lived, Anything can degenerate, right? Institutions can decay, norms can decay. And so while certainly I do not think democracy faces the same kinds of threats in France or the United States that it did in places like Hungary or Turkey, that doesn't mean we shouldn't be very conscious of the fragility of democracy, of the fragility of the norms and institutions that give us a true liberal democracy. A true liberal democracy. Okay. So that, that helps us then understand the kind of spectrum here. Uh, so let me, let me now begin to look if, with you at uh, Western Europe. And uh, you've suggested that there really are uh, three reasons for the success of liberal democracy, uh, certainly post-World War II. And the three are... The rule, the sorry, the role of the United States in constructing an economic and military order. Some would call it the <laughs> liberal international order that promoted peace and prosperity in Europe. Uh, the successful advance of European integration, and the construction of social democratic systems uh, that avoided, uh, presumably avoided, economic crises at least for a period of time, and mm -hmm. kept inequality low 
and narrow social divisions that were apparent within uh, various Western European uh, societies. Now, you've suggested that the wheels began to come off on all three elements uh, beginning in the 1970s. Maybe you can explain a bit more what you think occurred and what the threat then is, that is posed. So if you look back at um, the post-World War II period, right, yep. it's important to recognize that up until that point, um, liberal democracy was not the norm in Western Europe. In fact, it was very exceptional, right? We did not have stable liberal democracies in Europe as the norm before 1945. And so to make that happen after the tragedies of the interwar period and the Second World War, actors both in the United States and Western Europe recognized that things were going to have to change and change dramatically. And as you mentioned, it's really remarkable the degree of changes that happen at the domestic level, the regional level, and the international level. All three um, systems at all three of those levels had to change to make democracy work after 1945. As you said, at the international level, the United States took the lead in building a new um, international security and economic order that would both integrate Europe and the United States together, as well as you know generate the peace and prosperity that were necessary for democracy to flourish. European integration was also initially recognized as part of this project. That is to say, um, in particular, after 1945, the two main goals were economic reconstruction and sort of figuring out what to do with Germany, that is mm -hmm. to say, finally solving the German problem. And both of those challenges were too big to be um, handled by European countries acting alone. And so you needed a process of European cooperation to ensure that economic development took off again after the tragedy of the war, and also that Germany was somehow or another prevented from becoming the destabilizing force that it had been, you know, since it was formed in the 18. 70s. And then at the domestic level, ways had to be found to put an end to the social and economic conflicts that had given rise to extremism mm -hmm. and scuttled democracy in the past. And remarkably, right, through a combination of actually learning from the past, the tragedies of the Second World War, and the foresight and self-interest of the United States, all three of these levels were, again, dramatically reshaped after 1945. And it is on this tripartite foundation that democracy finally came to Western Europe. Now, as you also mentioned, by the 1970s, the world had changed and these systems were beginning to crumble a little bit. Mm -hmm. And I think what you've seen since the you know, late 20th century accelerated in many ways by the collapse of the Soviet Union, which eliminated the threat of communism and changed the world in many other ways. And then with the trigger of the financial crisis and also to some degree the refugee crisis, we really saw systems that were already beginning to decay be put under very, very extraordinary pressure. And all three of those systems now are kind of hanging on, but really in, in attenuated forms. Um, I would say, oddly enough, the European integration project may be in the best shape of the three, <laughs> but okay. clearly that is under some significant threat as we watch the unfolding comedy slash disaster in Britain unfold. I see. So, so uh, it, it, a fraying of the framework that really promoted uh, liberal democracy um, uh Obviously, it's evident with, uh, you know, and maybe in terms of social democratic systems, 
at least social democratic parties, that seemed to be, they seem to have suffered most dramatically uh, in Western Europe. Would you kind of agree with that? I mean, and what does this signal? Well, certainly from an electoral and an empirical perspective, um, social democratic parties have really um, uh, sunk to levels of support that haven't been seen since the late you know, 19th century in some cases, right? So the tr main parties of the post-war era, the parties of the center left and the center right, you know, Christian democratic parties um, in many parts of Europe and social democratic parties or labor parties, those parties are really, again, suffering dramatically. And that, that decline also begins in the 1970s, but the social democratic parties have suffered even greater declines than their Christian democratic counterparts, but the order more generally, so not just the parties associated with it, but the order more generally, a sort of robust welfare state that protected citizens, but also helped them adjust to economic change, a sort of strong sense of social solidarity, a commitment on the part of the government to sort of managing markets and managing capitalism. I mean, that has definitely not been destroyed in Europe. And in fact, I think, you know, most Europeans uh, in all countries, if polled, would support some version of that today. Mm -hmm. But the ability to kind of make that work and to make it consistent with the changing nature of markets and capitalism today, that has indeed come under a lot of pressure um, across Europe over the last couple of decades. Well, and it, let me let me follow up because uh, our colleague uh, Jack Snyder um, mm -hmm. from the University of or from Columbia um, uh, noted in a piece he did in the spring for Foreign Affairs, he said. They, that is the political leaders, have constrained democratic politics to fit the logic of international markets and shifted policymaking to unaccountable bureaucracies or supranational institutions such as the EU, which he describes as kind of disembedded liberalism, and we can talk about that in a second. Is this, do you see this as, as the path that uh, at least Western Europe has taken? Well, there certainly has definitely been a shift to trying to accommodate domestic policies to what are seen as, um, you know, global market mm -hmm. um, needs, right? And that has happened often through the interface in Europe of the European Union, which has become much more of a sort of engine to promote free trade than it has to become an engine to promote convergence in other kinds of areas, social policy areas, political areas, et cetera, et cetera. So, I mean, yes, that is absolutely true. Um, and that's part of where the pressure on, you know, the domestic order has come from, from this kind of sense that things that were possible during the post-war decades are no longer possible because of changes in markets and capitalism. Um, and also, again, associated with that is the rise of international organizations, the EU and others, um, that seem to have taken power away from nationally elected governments and put them in the hands of kind of, quote unquote, unelected bureaucrats, often who act as kind of promoters of this kind of seemingly new global order. So, you know, the combination of this feeling that markets are dictating things and that decisions are being made by unelected bureaucrats is really aggravated, not surprisingly, many citizens. And is also, to get back to one of the earlier points we were discussing, one of the main kind of complaints that populists um, exploit. Okay. Uh, you know, let me, let's look at trade just for a moment, though. Uh, because it's it's evident that you know uh, in the mid 1990s, uh, 
a kind of refurbished trade regime was created. That is the World Trade Organization. And what it really sought to do was to bring, uh, in quotes, the rule of law to at least a good portion of the trade system of those who were part of the WTO and to move away from the unilateralism and to move away from the protectionism that was harming uh, uh, trade. I mean, don't you see that as really a positive feature, which now seems to be under attack most most directly, uh, in fact, by the United States, but not only, but most directly by the United States. So, yes, but this brings us back again, I think, to a point that we just discussed a few moments ago, right, which is that after the Second World War, the United States was intent on recreating an open, as you called it, liberal international order. Mm -hmm. But one of the things that was so remarkable, right, and again, was largely a result of having to learn very, very harsh lessons um, after the tragedies of the interwar period and the Second World War, was that they recognized that in order to have a truly international, free trade, liberal order, that you had to allow societies to adjust. You had to allow governments to compensate people for market disruptions. You had to allow governments to help people deal with the inevitable changes that free trade and global capitalism brings, right? Mm -hmm. You know, some jobs come and some jobs go. Some industries rise, other industries fall. Some parts of the country do well, other parts of the country do less well, right? So I am personally a big fan of things like free trade and the liberal international order. But you can't have that without some kind of domestic adjustment and expect people to find that disruption, that destabilization, those kinds of changes that capitalism inevitably brings, as Marx said, all that is solid melts into air. <laughs> if they do not have a government that they feel is responsive to them, that will help them adjust, that will compensate them for changes over which they have no control, then it seems to me not surprising that, you know, there will be lots of resentments, that social cleavages will arise, that people will look for scapegoats for their problems. So, yes, the WTO could indeed and should have been, and free trade should be a progressive force. But decoupled from the social democratic compromise at the domestic order, it is a recipe for destabilizing economic, social, and political change. Okay, but I mean, one kind of follow-on from that is, I mean, isn't what you're concerned with really more, not so much at the international organization level, but at the domestic level? Because we're talking, talk, maybe there is a failure at the international level, but at the domestic level, the adjustment processes that you've raised, uh, you know, with changing economies, with automation, with in innovation and all the rest of it, I mean, has generally been perceived to be more at domestic policy levels. The WTO is not pre preventing those adjustments. If we look, for instance, at the United States, the adjustment processes are woefully inadequate. But that's not because of the WTO no, or anything like that. No, of course like not. Of course not. I'm not blaming the double T WTO oh, in uh, particular. Yeah. yeah, no, no, I'm sorry. And if I and if I if I sounded as if I was, then I, I clearly misspoke. What I was talking more about was the sort of general shift to a kind of, you know, neoliberal mindset mm -hmm. Mm -hmm. that happened over, you know, the past few decades, right? The sense that 
you could have this new globalized capitalism, free trade, et cetera, et cetera, and somehow or another do away with um, you know, a lot of the social protections that existed at the domestic level. That's not the fault of the WTO. I mean, that's a general problem of ideology, of political elites, of political parties. Uh, you know, it's a much broader mm-hmm. issue than simply one international arrangement or organization. Sure. That, okay, uh, that, that makes a lot of sense. I guess that, you know, you've looked at one of the other features of the, the tripartite uh, examination, of course, was uh, the, glo- the institutions, the global institutions and or European integration. So I wanted to ask you, you know, there's been now a change in the commission. Do, do you see that it's possible for the EU leadership to enhance uh, democratic politics or is at the EU level they're stuck with the technocracy and uh, that's that's where it's going to be. And, you know, you got to cope with that problem. So just as we were talking about with the WTO and free trade, I mean, I think um, European integration is generally um, a very positive thing. I think it was, as I mentioned, a critical part of the reason why liberal democracy came to stay in Europe after 1945. And I think it is a force for progress. There are, however, very significant flaws built into the current EU, which scholars have talked endlessly about, (laughs) most notably the um, divergence between levels of economic um, integration and political integration. Um, You can't have them so out of whack because as we saw during the financial crisis, um, what happens when you have a high level of economic integration and you have countries that are forced to accept limits on their national sovereignty as far as being able to make monetary and other economic policy choices are concerned, but there's no general agreement on how to set the rules. There's no mechanism from um, up high on how to compensate the losers of change. You're going to get blowback and resentments. And we're Mm -hmm. seeing that again right now in the, again, the comic tragedy that's playing out in Britain, right? You know, the the calls to take back control would be much less resonant if people felt that the European Union was a force for good. After the financial crisis and the immigration crisis, people are like, look, this is, I don't see the benefits of this. Now, again, I think that's quite short-sighted, but I'm not surprised that people were able to exploit those kinds of concerns given how much the European Union was battered by the financial crisis, I would say, in particular. Uh So, you know, as far as the EU is concerned right now, I think basically what it's doing is the other parts of that tripartite foundation we've been discussing. It's basically holding on. There's no possible way I can see the EU making, undertaking any major initiatives as is. There's too much turmoil. There's too many problems. It's not just Brexit. It's the fact that we now have Hungary and perhaps Poland in the eastern part of the European Union backsliding from democracy. There's a whole variety of challenges that the EU faces now. It is certainly not going to be, as far as I can tell, undertaking any major initiatives. So let's just hope it stays, it manages to stay together, overcome its current challenges, and hopefully then in the future can tackle some of these bigger underlying um, problems. Okay, so let's look at then some of these uh, real difficulties. And the obvious one, at least on the face of it, um, is uh, British politics. You've already uh, spoken to some degree uh, to it. I mean, do you think, is there a prospect or where where is the moment 
when the EU and the and the EU twenty seven, that is the leadership, uh, gets down to it and uh, you know negotiates uh, some additional features or maybe not with respect to the British. Uh, you know, demands with respect to uh, leaving and the no Brexit deal. Is there is there a, a place where the EU comes back into play? Well, I mean, look, at this point, everything is in a holding pattern because um, we have to see what happens as far as the British government is concerned. It seems there's not going to be an election before right. October 31st. And after October 31st, when there probably will be an election, you know, there's going to be some very difficult choices to be made. The polls now actually have the conservatives ahead, which is pretty remarkable when you think about what a mess that party is. <laughs> but, you know, if the conservatives are ahead and you don't have a crash out Brexit on October 31st, you know, the, the, the game is going to continue, right? It's going to continue with admittedly chastened um, adversaries, but some deal has to be met. Mm -hmm. uh, has to be made. Mm -hmm. And so until that happens, it's very hard to see, again, what else Europe is going to be focused on, right? This, this, this question of the relationship with Britain has to be solved. It's sucking all of the air out of most everything else. Fortunately, Italy seems to have calmed down for the moment, so there's not those two crises to deal with. But, you know, it's not, it's not clear to me what would happen if the conservatives were not running ahead in the polls, and you imagine an election that brought to power a government that was much more amenable to compromise, then one would assume that after October 31st, some sort of deal would be mm -hmm. made, mm -hmm. you know, mm -hmm. a Norway kind of deal or something like that. But that's simply not looking possible right now, because even if the no deal crash out on the 31st seems hopefully to have been avoided, if we have an election in the middle of November that brings the conservatives back to power, it's not clear how this is going to end. It will, but the longer it drags on, the worse it is for Britain and the worse it is for Europe. Europe, okay. Uh, there seem to be, and maybe uh, I'm dreaming and technical here, but a glimmer of hope because, uh, you know, our, our good friend Boris Johnson had spoken with the uh, Tezhet, um in Ireland, and there had been this proposal um, f that Johnson had uh, promoted, which was kind of a uh, uh, keeping Northern Ireland within this zone for agriculture, right? Yeah. Uh, and yeah. and but it, you know what seemed to the Europeans to have emerged suddenly is this notion that okay, if he finally sees the light and agrees to a more complete um, zone around Northern Ireland. Uh, you know, as remaining within the EU and the rest of uh, Great Britain toodles off, that that, in fact, might well be a solution. Uh, the kind of, uh, you know, uh, Brexit 1.0, as somebody kind of uh, alluded to, because it was an earlier proposal uh, mm -hmm. on the table that um, uh, the former prime minister um, rejected. But mm -hmm. on the other hand, at the moment, our good friends of the DUP don't seem to have the kind of influence that they had with Theresa May. Right. I mean, look, there were always potential options, um, Alan, right? Okay. The question was, was there the political support for them? I mean, you and I could throw out, I mean, there was, you know, again, there's the Norway option, there's mm -hmm. this option, there's the that option. The problem was not that there weren't potential scenarios that could be chosen. The problem was, is that 
there seems to have been agreement on, okay, look, we had this referendum and we won out, but there was no agreement on what was supposed to follow that, right? So should Johnson decide, okay, look, I'm willing to give up Northern Ireland in the sense that I will accept some special status for it, which has been a kind of third rail for conservatives and part of um, the unionist um, groups in right. Northern Ireland forever. You could have figured something out, you know, a while ago. The question is, how far is he willing to take that? Is it enough to satisfy the Irish? Is it enough to satisfy the European Union? Is it is it too much or not enough to satisfy the moderates and or the diehard conservatives in his party? The options are, are varied. The question is, can now, once the referendum was already done, it's a done deal, can there be some kind of majority for what is supposed to happen afterwards? Mm-hmm. Is there? <laughs> well, this is the problem. It really doesn't seem like there is because, okay, yeah. again, you have this very weird situation where there seems to be a majority against, you know, crash out right. Brexit. Right. But the polls say the conservatives will win when an election is held. And so, you know, it really depends then on whether or not Johnson um, is willing to bend, dig himself out of the ditch that he said he would never throw himself into, <laughs> and accept that if he wants to actually rule and not just be, in, you know, be prime minister, he's going to have to make some compromises. Otherwise, he will never escape from this trap. I mean, he's been prime minister now for whatever period of time, very short, hasn't passed anything, suffered defeats on everything. You know, that's presumably not the way he wants to rule, and he won't be able to rule that way. Right. Okay. Let's look a little bit more at the rest of Western Europe before we have to go. Um, obviously, Chancellor Merkel is in the situation of beginning to fade away. I guess the question uh, more, at, you know, kind of at the EU level, however, is, is her successor in a position and will her successor be willing to partner up with the French? I mean, President Macron still seems very intent on pressing forward on at least some aspects of the European project. Is that realistic or are you uh, still of the view that hanging on is all we can look forward to in terms of Europe? Well, I mean, the CDU is has a history as a pro-Europe party, but it understands that in very different ways than the French do, right? So they generally favor Europe. Um, they're pro-European integration, all that kind of stuff. But they are much warier than the French are of kind of increasing political authority at the European level. Mm -hmm. So I and I especially suspect that with Merkel gone, not only will her will her successor be weaker than she was, but her party is weaker than it was during, obviously, the height of her power. So I don't suspect that the Germans will support any major initiatives, but I would suspect that whether under the CDU or in some alternative universe, the SPD, which at this point doesn't look likely to come back into power as a major party at any time soon. I mean, you will see support for Europe, but major initiatives, I'm not sure I see where the support for that in Germany or frankly in the rest of Europe lies. Macron is obviously an idealist and he strongly believes in Europe and he understands Europe to be part of the solution to the problems that the continent faces, faces. but he does not alone have the power to bring the rest of Europe along. So I don't suspect that you will see dramatic changes in the near future. Again, I think Europe first has to deal with the crises that it's facing, most notably um, Britain and what's going on in Eastern Europe.
So, so those are the, the you know the real um, targets of concern. And potentially Italy, if um, this current government falls and we get Salvini in power again, that would make things even more complicated. Well, yeah, and I did want to raise that because, uh, you know, it looked like the Italians had kind of uh, uh, dodged a bullet here uh, in that uh, Salvini's strategy, which appeared to be to go for election because they were apparently doing well in the polls, that is the league. Um, uh, didn't work out, and what you've got is a new government with a, which is a coalition of the center-left Democratic Party and the left-wing populist, the left-wing populist uh, five-star movement. Uh, clearly, not big friends, uh, and certainly not in the past, but nevertheless, at the moment, tied together in a coalition. What, what's the prospect for them? Not only uh, kind of continuing to govern, but but dealing with this. The budgetary problem, which has been uh, front and center for Italy now for years. Well, so there's two there's two related parts to your question. I mean, the five stars movement came to came to into being partially um, uh, in in um, in in opposition to the Democratic Party, which it viewed as a sort of center-left technocratic party, which to a large degree it was, right? So these two parties do not have a history of mutual love and affection. (laughs) And in fact, again, in particular, Five Stars saw the Democratic Party as part of the problem Mm -hmm. it was designed to solve. However, you know, um, the enemy and my enemy kind of thing, um, I think what Five Stars realized was that even though it, like the League, had this very strong anti-establishment focus, that the league was anti-establishment in a way that was perhaps not congenial mm-hmm. to it. Um, as you mentioned, sometimes the five stars is called left populist. I think it's really kind of a mishmash as Italian politics is often. It's definitely not right wing in the same manner as the league, league is, yeah. but it has a kind of mix of weird policies that are not really, I would say, left or right. Its strongest feature was its sort of anti-establishment bias. But again, promoting promoting. Um, cooperation with the Democratic Party proved easy once it realized that governing with um, Salvini and the League was going to be impossible, and presumably also they recognized to the detriment of Italy more generally. So how those two parties are going to work together now that they have a common enemy? Maybe. Um, The big problem, as you said, right, the main challenge they face right now is dealing with Italy's economic crisis. Italy has done terribly Mm-hmm. Over the past um, decade or two, it is the only major economy that still has not really recovered from the financial crisis. Growth rates have been anemic for a very long time. Youth unemployment is incredibly high. The country faces very deep structural economic problems. Whether or not this coalition can begin to tackle them, and this is a long term process, the problems are deep, remains to be seen. I hope for Italy's sake and um, Europe's sake that they do, because they are really, these are very, very deep problems. And surely if they don't tackle them, Salvini's hand, Salvini's hand will be even stronger. And his ability to exploit, again, fear of immigrants and the other, you know, to kind of explain away Italy's longstanding woes will only get greater with, again, some very, very negative consequences, both for Italy and Europe. Mm-hmm. So, so in the end, from your perspective, uh, the key problems, particularly in Western Europe, tend to be on in the area of the of the economic. I mean, uh, it, would you agree with that? Is that where the central 
problem is that populists have been able to play off of? Well, I no, actually, okay. I would say that the problems, there are deep, deep economic problems, and solving those is necessary for um, um, a progressive future for Europe. Um, and by progressive, I mean not just characterized by growth, um, but also by a politics that is supportive of liberal democracy. But the other major issue, which is connected only indirectly, is questions about immigration mm -hmm. and more generally national identity. In fact, in Western Europe, the issue that most directly motivates populist voters is immigration and the related issue of national identity. They're not really motivated directly by economic problems, but there's simply no doubt, there's simply no doubt that slow growth, high unemployment, increasing divergence between successful metropolitan regions and quote unquote left behind, you know, rural and less developed areas. These are, um, you know, conditions in which um, zero sum politics, resentment of the other, scapegoating thrives. So mm -hmm. there has to be some kind of compromise at the European level on immigration. There has to be some kind of compromise at the domestic level between the center-left and the center-right and other liberal democratic parties about how to deal with these questions of demographic change and national identity. Um, all of these things really need to um, happen for Europe to get back on the path of, again, you know, healthy, progressive, liberal democratic politics. Is, is, that, is the politics that you've just been describing uh, con uh, constrained to Western Europe or or do, are, are you really speaking to a much broader, and I suspect you are, much broader problem, which, you know, includes uh, the United States and it includes, obviously, Eastern Europe, because you've had some attention, you've paid attention to that, uh, that this is really, I mean, the problem is difficulties in, in really describing what that is, because some people want to call it economic, and yet... You've tended to argue it's much more identity politics and the concern about uh, the other, uh, and that this is really the heart of the difficult politics today, both in Western Europe and potentially even in, in North America. Well, I think one of the things that makes our current era so um, difficult and potentially interesting is that we're experiencing um, processes of rapid economic, social, and technological change concurrently, right? So obviously we're in a period when, you know, global capitalism is changing, new products, new markets, the rise of, you know, developing countries, all these kinds of things. And then the social changes are dramatic. This means not only increased immigration, but it's obviously the rising mobilization of minority groups, changing social norms, erosion of quote unquote traditional values. And then also, again, there's the technological aspect, which not only feeds into the changes in capitalism, but also is changing the way we communicate, the way citizens relate to each other, the way they relate to their government, the kinds of identity groups that they form. So there's just a lot of change going on right now. And I think that that's really what's underlying a lot of the problems. It's underlying a lot of resentments. It's underlying a lot of divisions in society. It's making it more difficult for democracies to function. Um, it's putting pressure on institutions that were formed in a different era, but are now facing, again, the challenges of the 21st century, the demands of a more educated, more connected populace. So I think part of what we need to understand is how very, um, how 
very unstable or how very characterized by myriad changes our contemporary era is. And again, mm -hmm. that makes it most challenging and also, um, you know, very interesting. <laughs> well, I want to thank you, Sherry, for your taking this time out of your very busy schedule uh, to talk about uh, the, you know, the crisis of politics uh, in Europe and, and beyond. Uh, it's been a real pleasure uh, in, uh, in uh, examining these really, really complex problems. It's been my pleasure. I hope, uh, hope everyone found it helpful. Okay. You've been listening to the Global Symmetry Podcast with Alan Alexandrov. This episode was edited by Kyle Fulton, and the music you heard was composed and performed by Rory Lavelle. You can find more of his music at rorylavelle.bandcamp.com.